Hi, I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics. And once, when I was headed into surgery after anesthesia to repair a broken arm, I asked the surgeon to give me claws like Wolverine, and sadly, he didn't. And I'm Garrick, and to my best recollection, my mother once set my hair on fire to kill a tick. Well, Avengers Endgame has now passed Avatar on the list of the highest grossing movies of all time in the United States and Canada. And all of that is likely to change at the end of this year when Star Wars Episode Nine: Rise of Skywalker is released. But for right now, that puts Avengers Endgame in second place behind Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. And Avengers Endgame ends on an apocalyptic note with a resurrection and a judgment followed by a reunion of those who are living with those who had once died. And all of this deeply echoes the story of God. In a previous episode of Three Chords in the Truth, we focused on the meta-narrative of this story and the ethics of Avengers Endgame. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the theme of resurrection, not only in Avengers Endgame, but also in other superhero stories. Joining us to talk about this today is Sean McDowell, superhero, superfan, extraordinaire, and professor of apologetics at Biola University in California. And then in the second half of the program, Garrick and I will go digging for divine truth in the classic song and multi-platinum album by the Eagles, Hotel California. If you enjoy superheroes and great theology, there is no book better than Superheroes Can't Save You by our friend Todd Miles, published by B&H Academic. To learn more about Superheroes Can't Save You, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. This is Garrick, and one of our favorite apologists is joining us today. Sean McDowell is professor of apologetics at Biola University and author of several books, including Apologetics for a New Generation. Sean, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. So all of those things that Timothy said about you, superhero, superfan, extraordinaire, is, is is that a part of your official job description? Is that like on your business card? Well, in some ways, I've thought about making it, but I definitely keep it unofficial to the shirts I wear, the shoes I wear sometimes, and illustrations I like. So it's about as close to official as it can get. Yeah, I, I completely understand. So if you had to pick one superpower from from one of our known popular superheroes, could you pick just one? Would you be able to do that? You know what? I think I would answer the question of who my favorite superhero is and by definition, probably then take his superpowers. My favorite superhero by far is Spider-Man. There's a few reasons for that. Number one, I've never related to Iron Man. Morally, just brilliant person that he is with technology. That's just not the way I've seen the world. Don't relate to Superman in any fashion. Don't relate to Batman. I'm not rich and full of anger at what happened to my parents. But Spider-Man's like this teenager who just struggled to make sense of life and was very relatable. But I also love the ethic of Spider-Man. 
in the sense that uh, when Ben Parker says, with power comes great responsibility, is kind of a Christian theme when Jesus said, he who's given much, much is required. So I have always been a big Spider-Man fan. Well, speaking from a theological perspective, thinking about that, why do you think it is that superheroes appeal so deeply to so many people? Oh, I think because we just know and resonate that we're in a broken world. We know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we look naturally for someone to fix the world. We kind of deep down inside know that we can't do it ourselves. Whether it's climate change, whether it's gun violence, whatever problem we talk about, there's something inside of us that just feels like we need someone to step up and save us. And superheroes kind of appeal to that sense that we want salvation. We want a world made right. So that's why I think people just resonate with superheroes. They always have and they really always will. Yeah, thinking on the topic of resurrection that we mentioned earlier, Could you describe some of the best superhero resurrection stories, whether that's from the movies or from comic books that you've read? So I used to read comic books. I don't read a ton of comic books really anymore, except when like Civil War came out. I went and got that comic book ahead of time, and I do that with a handful of them. But I think of, you know, obviously depending on exactly what we mean by resurrection, but you see the theme appearing in the first Avengers in the sense that Iron Man really plays the sacrificial role, willing to take the weapon into space, lay down his life. You think he's dead, although we know he's really not dead, of course, at that stage, and Hulk shakes him out of it. But you learn early on in the Marvel Universe that the greatest hero is one who's willing to lay down his life for others. And early on in that one, it's not just enough for Iron Man to lay down. We really want him to come back and still be with us and ultimately conquer death. So as you think about that, as you think about how we see this recurrent theme in the comic books, do you think that the people who are creating the comic books are consciously aware and creating these movies, are they consciously aware that they are replaying in some sense God's story, even in spite of themselves? Or do you think that that's just something that's woven in us so deeply that it comes out and they maybe aren't even aware of it at all? I think that's a great question, one I've thought about. And I asked that question in particular with Infinity War because I think it's in that movie that you really see the worldview of the question to what would we sacrifice a human life for? Is it Thanos who sacrifices to others or is it the Avengers who say, you know, Captain America says we're not in the business of exchanging lives until that's all that can be done to save the universe? I tend to think that the makers of this, and I have no special insight, I think they're saying over 10 plus years, I don't remember, 20 some films, all these actors, let's tell the most epic grand story we possibly can. And they just can't escape from the idea that a sacrifice to redeem other people of laying down your life is the greatest sacrifice that can be made. You see it in a smaller level in movies like The Matrix or 
Avatar or Big Hero 6. I mean, it just keeps bubbling up. So to answer your question, I think it's the latter that it's just written on our hearts, like C.S. Lewis talked about, that you have these vague stories of these dying and rising gods because God's implanted it on our heart, that the greatest story is to lay down one's life and conquer the grave. So I have no insight. I wouldn't be shocked if they said, hey, we patterned this after the gospel. Although, come to think of it, maybe in some ways I would be a little bit surprised. But that aside, I think it's just human nature. And I don't watch Game of Thrones, but there's people talking about the ending being disappointed. And I wonder just what I know about the show, given that it has this nihilistic worldview brought through it, I don't know that you can, given that worldview, have a deeply satisfying ending. Mm, yeah, that's a good word. Thinking back over the last 10 or 11 years and, and these 22 films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, can you think of, in your opinion, what the most powerful moment from a theological perspective was? Oh, my goodness. From a theological perspective. Or, I mean, you, you can also answer just personally or both. I actually think the most powerful moment was not in Endgame, but it was in Infinity War. And you see from the moment that that movie opens, you have the question of, let me see, Loki asking the question, am I going to sacrifice my brother Thor? You have Scarlet Witch asking the question, am I going to sacrifice Vision? You have Doctor Strange asking the question, am I going to have to sacrifice Iron Man? You have the question of Star-Lord, am I going to sacrifice Gamora? And there's a scene in the movie, if I remember it correctly, where I think Star-Lord says he discovers what Thanos has done with Gamora, and he says, this is not love. When he said that, I paused. I thought, oh my gosh, this movie is about love. And it hit me, of course, Jesus says in John 15, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. And when you get to the end of Infinity or what do you have? You have Vision saying, he really was kind of the Christ figure in that movie saying, take this out of me to save other people. Let me give the stone away and lay down my life for others. That willingness I thought was more powerful than the way Endgame ended, if you ask me personally. Both existentially and theologically, I thought it was more powerful. Yeah, I think Vision is one of the most fascinating characters because he really does become, in some sense, a Christ figure, even beginning back in Age of Ultron when he speaks of himself as I am, even. I think there's even a hint of that there. He is also a union of two natures. I find that really fascinating with Vision, that he is a union of two natures. And that's one of the ones that either there is something woven very deeply in us that we even get some things like that correct in terms of seeing a good story and how there's a sacrifice redemption motif that echoes the gospel, or somebody was consciously aware and thinking about that in Vision, because Vision I find to be such a fascinating character at that level. Well, what was your favorite moment in Avengers Endgame, whether from a theological perspective or from a personal perspective or both of those in Avengers Endgame? You know what? I'm not going to give the answer that you're looking for. I did not love Endgame. So I knew Captain America was going to pick up the <laughs> – he was going to get the hammer. Everyone's cheering. I'm like, how did you not see this coming? So I don't know. Maybe I'd seen so many and I was a little bit jaded. But I thought Endgame, Captain America should have laid down his life. That was his theme. 
that with his motif, that with his character, and saying the true ultimate character is the one who does to the end. Because he entered into the army in Captain America 1 by saying, men are laying down their lives. I can do no less than this. He lays down his life for Bucky. We already knew that Iron Man was going to lay down his life. We saw it in Avengers 1. We knew he was willing to do that. That was actually never in question with him. So I thought it would have been more satisfying going a different direction. But once you introduce time travel, you can just mess with anything you want to and all the rules go out the window. So once they introduced that, I think some of the character arcs that they had built didn't go the direction that I thought they would. Now, to go back, not just Endgame, I'll tell you one of my favorite scenes in all of the Marvel movies and why I was disappointed at the end of Endgame. I think where I was moved to more close to tears, maybe I cried the first time, is the end of Thor 1. When Thor has been humbled, he's been broken, he's gone through the journey, the classic mythical story of the hero who's been humbled, finally learns his place, and then re-gets the hammer, and he's now able to fight for good. At the end of the movie, that scene with his father, I love it. I get goosebumps. He says, maybe someday I could be a good hero like you. I watch that and go, wow, that's awesome. Fast forward to the end of Endgame. He has completely just lost any moral standing. He gives up being king in a moment, and he just kind of becomes a joker, and he's a drunk. And I thought the arc that they've taken him on is so different and to me disappointing from where they started. So I just didn't feel like they brought the characters to the full arc that I was expecting. Now, maybe was I importing stuff onto the movie? Sure. There still was some interesting, fun things in the film. But I thought the best two movies of all the Marvel Universe were Infinity War and Captain America 2. I agree with you on Captain America 2, Winter Soldier especially. That's probably my favorite one in that. And surely, I hope, I hope, I hope that there is some redemption for Thor in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because I would hate to leave him as the big Lebowski. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thinking of the next phase of whatever the Marvel Universe looks like, how do you think that it's going to be impacted by the rise of secularity? What might the Marvel movies look like now, given kind of the continually changing scene in our society? Well, my fear is that the movies are going to completely go intersectional and start to value diversity. And I'm not saying we shouldn't value diversity, but diversity just for diversity's sake sometimes can bring in just consequences and a perspective that don't ultimately serve the telling of the best stories that need to be told. As Christians, we should value diversity because we're all made in the image of God and every language and nation and tribe will be before the Father. So I am completely in favor of diversity in that sense. But there's also kind of a political agenda of diversity that I think isn't rooted in biblical ideas. And I think we're going to start seeing that. I hope I'm wrong about this, but I think we're going to start seeing that woven into some of the stories, in particular, some things I've heard about Eternals coming up that concerns me. And I've wondered how long Marvel could get away with not incorporating certain characters and certain elements and certain moral themes. They've been able to do it because this Marvel Universe started you know, a decade ago before some of these were really in as much play as they are now. But I think this next phase 
unfortunately, we may see a shift given some of the political commitments of some of the Marvel key players, even people like Kevin Feige. I agree with you on that, and I have the same concern with Star Wars. I hope they can get to episode nine later this year and finish the Skywalker story arc that goes all the way through the nine films plus the two spinoffs. I hope that they can get through that without shifting into that mode. I just feel like that they may not, and they may feel compelled in this last big episode nine to do something like that, to politicize that in some way. But I hope they don't. I hope they're able to finish that story arc in that way where they're about telling a good story rather than trying to promote a particular social agenda. Well, let's talk about the curriculum that you've recently completed. You've recently completed a curriculum, excellent curriculum with some videos, things like that called So the Next Generation Will Know. Could you tell us a little bit about the video curriculum that you've done? Yeah, so the video curriculum is based upon the book that I wrote with Jay Warner Wallace, and it's basically a practical guide for anybody who cares about the next generation. So a teacher, a parent, a youth pastor, a mentor, an uncle who looks at this generation and says, gosh, they have more challenges, mainly because of smartphones, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, just one click away. How do we understand and uniquely pass on our faith to this next generation. So this is not an apologetics book. Jay Werner Wallace and I have written apologetics books. This is a how-to book in the sense that we put it in somebody's hands and say, here are practical ideas to actually pass on the faith to this generation. It's a how-to kind of book. And frankly, we're only a few weeks in, and the response has been really humbling. I think we kind of you know, scratched an itch, so to speak, where there's a lot of people really concerned about this new generation and where culture is going. So that was our target. We looked around and thought, you know what, there's a lot of books about understanding the next generation, a lot of books about why you should engage this generation, but not a lot that give you the nuts and bolts how to guide to actually do this with Gen Z. Well, Coming from a couple of former youth pastors and dads of teenagers, friends, if you're listening to this right now and you in any way invest in the lives of the next generation or know folks who do, we would strongly encourage you to pick up this excellent resource to equip yourself or or others in the church to pass on the faith to these folks. Well, it is now time for the most dangerous portion of our program when Garrick bravely reaches within the Infinity Gauntlet. And now, Garrick is reaching within the Infinity Gauntlet, being careful that he does not snap lest he wipe out half of the population. We found out now in Endgame, it's not just on Earth. It was of the universe at this point. It was the universe. And he has pulled out a question that we are going to share with our guest. And the question for this week is... Whose gadgets are better and why? Iron Man's or Batman's? Dun, dun, dun. Who has the better toys? Which billionaire wins in the fight? I guess that's the question. I feel like we've answered a similar question before, and in the end, it's tough not to go with Batman because, after all, he fought Superman and came out in the end as, as victor. Yeah, but keep in mind, Iron Man, just through his suit alone, 
almost defeated Thanos as well as anybody. And even Thanos said, man, you should be remembered for your courage and ingenuity. So it's pretty hard to beat Iron Man. I mean, because Thanos is a lot more powerful with the Infinity Stones than Superman ever was. Yeah, and could it be, could it be that... Iron Man was holding back some on Captain America, even if he was not explicitly doing so implicitly in the back of his mind, unconsciously, is he holding back? Or uh, the Iron Man that almost defeated Thanos is a different person. He has gone through something. He has something else that he's fighting for. And so perhaps it was never a, a lack of gadgets or ability, but it was something lacking inside that he could... And yeah. what if his suit was made of vibranium? <laughs> well, come on now. Come on now. <laughs> that would be pretty amazing. If his suit was made of vibranium, then he would win at that point, surely. And it caused me to ask the question, why isn't his suit made of vibranium? Does he not have the money to get himself some vibranium? That? That's right. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know. It may, be, it may be a draw at this point. It would be hard to put these two against each other. I would love to see Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark go into battle against each other in their relative suits, Batman in his best suit that he fought Superman in, and Iron Man in his suit going up against each other, it would be a battle for the ages. If it's Michael Keaton Batman, I'm voting for him. <laughs> Just gotta say. Rock and roll is one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why each week in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine tree in classic rock. I'm Garrick from the 1980s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s. And today's song was released in the fall of 1976. And when this song was released, the United States had just celebrated its 200th birthday. And Jimmy Carter had just been elected president by a narrow margin of the popular vote. And by 1976, really that hippie dream that we've talked about of a utopian communal society that achieved peace by leaving behind all the constraints of the past, it was really fading away by this point. And it was in this context that the song and the album Hotel California were born. This is one of the greatest songs in the history of American rock and roll. It's played on average once every 11 minutes on radio stations in the United States. That's around 130 times every day. That is unbelievable. Yeah, and it's got this deep, dark Spanish reggae feel. That's the thing about it. It doesn't sound like anything else that is typically on the radio. And so let's talk just a little bit about the music. I sat down and played the song on my guitar last night just to kind of refresh it in my mind and read about the formation of the music. And Don Felder originally wrote the music in the key of E minor. Now, that's like open chords way down and low on the guitar, but they ended up when they recorded it, they capoed it. And a capo is like a clamp that you put on the fretboard to raise the pitch of the strings. And they capoed it at the seventh fret, which is B minor, a little bit higher. Now what that did practically is it let other parts and other instruments kind of fill that space above it and below it to give this entire filling of the sonic space around this song. Thank you. 
Well, as with many songs, when I first heard this song was at a rock music seminar in a fundamentalist church in Springfield, Missouri. And we were told at that time that the Hotel California was a hotel in San Francisco that was owned by the Church of Satan. And if you looked closely, supposedly, on the inside cover of Hotel California, you could see leaning over the hotel balcony Anton LaVey, who was the founder of the Church of Satan. And which, of course, it made me, when I started listening to rock music and getting rebellious, the first thing I wanted to do was get Hotel California. And you know what? Even then, I couldn't find Anton LaVey in that album cover on the back of that album in any way, shape, or form. I but that's wish, why I heard it first. I wish I had these great stories that you had. I can't. I can't recall the first time I saw this, but or I heard this, but whatever, whenever it was, it wasn't as fun as that. So the real story behind this song is a lot less satanic, but a lot more interesting, actually, because it actually does begin with a snake in a garden. It really does begin with a snake in a garden. So Don Felder, who wrote the music, he and his wife, they lived in Los Angeles, and his wife had just given birth to a, a child, and the baby was lying in the garden, and she looked up and saw just a few feet from the baby an entire nest of rattlesnakes. And so she immediately called her husband, said, we're moving, we're leaving. She rented a beach house in Malibu, and he went and met her at the beach house in Malibu, and that's where he wrote this particular song. I would have set that place on fire before going to Malibu. And so he went there, and he was out on the beach, and he was playing, just strumming his guitar, and came up with this song in the key of E minor, not the key in which it was recorded. And one of the things about that is, when he was out there on that beach, I don't think he did it intentionally, but there was some clear plagiarism, unintentional plagiarism in this particular song, because Jethro Tull had recorded a song called We Used to Know, and it's the same song in the key in which he originally wrote that music. Nights of winter turn me cold, fears of dying, getting old. We ran the race, the race was won. Yeah, that is just unmistakable. When you first played that for me, uh, kind of the seconds leading up to a couple parts, I, I was, okay, I could see that. I'm not sure I would have noticed this if I was riding in the car and not listening for this purpose, but there are certainly a handful of moments where it is just undeniable. Yeah, I think what Felder did was quite a bit different than what Jethro Tull did, but you can definitely hear those similarities. If a Boyce College student wrote a paper with as many similarities to some other paper as this song has between Hotel California and We Used to Know, we would fail them in that That's, particular class. That is correct. I've had that conversation recently. And so kids, if you're out there, you're listening, Jethro Tull, Eagles, they're fantastic. Plagiarism, not so fantastic. Well, in the 1970s, when this song was recorded, Don Henley and Glenn Fry they really, they controlled the Eagles. And so I love what Joe Walsh said later. He said the Eagles were a democratic dictatorship. And when he was asked what it meant to be a democratic dictatorship, he said, we all voted and we said whatever we wanted. Then Don Henley and Glenn Fry did whatever they wanted. <laughs> so it's like, that's how I like to run my household as well. Everybody gets a vote, but I still do what I want. Oh. But, so because it was a democratic dictatorship, Don Felder, he had to present his musical ideas to Don Henley and Glenn Fry for their approval. And this song, this particular music that he presented, it really did capture Don Henley's imagination. And so Don Henley and Glenn Fry later wrote the lyrics, and the result was the song Hotel California. 
So there's so many lyrics and, and words and phrases that I have always had questions about. But overall, what is the song about? Well, really part of what inspires the lyrics as we know them was a novel called The Magus by a guy named John Fowles, and it was published in 1965. And this novel, The Magus, it's about a young man who goes to a Greek island to teach English, and he's caught up in this series of weird games that are hosted by this wealthy recluse, and they're called God Games. And it gets to the point that he can't leave the game because he no longer knows what is the game and what is real. He no longer knows what is real and what is fantasy, and he's stuck in it, so to speak, because of the fact that he doesn't know what is real and what is fantasy. But I think at the same time, there's some deeper things going along in there as well, because Don Henley had been toying with this phrase, Hotel California, for some time, up to the point that he wrote the lyrics with Glenn Fry. And Hotel California seems to be the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is in fact the hotel that's on the cover of the album, and that was the place where the Eagles were indulging in their excessive lifestyle of their drug abuse, their parties, the decadence. And I think part of what is happening right here is in the 1960s, you had had this casting off of moral restraints, but there it was with the hope of having this communal life, this communal utopia in the future without nations or property or older moral values that hold people back. But by the 1970s, there's no longer a longing for peace that's part of that. There's just the excess that comes from the casting aside of all these moral restraints. And that's why you have in the 1970s, the rock bands are smashing up hotels for no reason except that they can. The groupies, the hard partying, the hard drinking, the hard drugs, you see all that begin to emerge in the 1970s. Because you've got the casting off the moral restraints that in the 60s was supposed to lead to peace and to joy and to harmony, but it doesn't lead there. It just leads to excess. And so this album really, in some sense, stands between that fading idealism of the 1960s and the rising excess of the 1980s. But the Eagles, they're so fascinating because they're so unique in this, because they seem to recognize and to know that what they're doing isn't ultimately satisfying them. They actually seem to be in on the joke and they almost seem to recognize that they are the punchline of the joke. You hear that in songs like Desperado, where you've got, why don't you come to your senses? Somebody who is not settling down in any way, why don't you come to your senses? And the best place you have it is in Joe Walsh's song, Life's Been Good to Me, which is funny, but it's sad. It really is a song that's full of sadness. He's mocking the excess of his success. He talks about he smashes holes in the walls in the hotel and his accountants pay for it all. And he's seeming to paint this picture of this ideal life. But ultimately, even as you recognize in the song and listen to in the song, you recognize that this isn't really as ideal as he's making it sound. And he knows it. I go to parties sometimes until four. It's hard to leave when you can't find the door It's tough to handle this fortune and fame Everybody's so deep Yeah, compared to some of the songs that we looked at in the 60s in earlier episodes, you don't have the hope. They're not glamorizing this excess whatsoever in this song or in the album. You can definitely sense that even in the midst of this, that it seems to be a tiring excess, something that is wearing them 
down. Yeah, it's what Joe Walsh says later. He says, you get a royalty check, you go get a new car, then you party, then you get high, and you forget what got you there in the first place. And I think that's what Hotel California is about. It's about being trapped in a place that has everything, but you're still trapped there. And I think about Bernie Ledden, who actually was one of the original guitarists for the band, and he quit right before Hotel California. And actually, he ended up turning to Christ. He became a Christian, follows Christ still to the best of my knowledge today. He's a strong Christian. And what's interesting is he commented, looking back on this era in the Eagles' history, and he said, Hotel California is about being stuck. We can't get out. We were trying to be more satisfied. We needed more sex, more money, more food. Then we need more exciting sex and better tasting food. I've heard people say, give me more of everything and then I'll be satisfied, but you won't be. You won't be. And that's what Bernie Ledden, who famously quit the Eagles by dumping a mug of beer over Glenn Fry's head. If you're going to go out, you may as well go out big. And so Bernie Ledden dumped a mug of beer over Glenn Fry's head and quit the band and left it and ended up becoming a Christian in the end. And looking back on it, that's what he had to say. And it's as if the Eagles They know and they see this decadence. They hate it. They know it's controlling them, but they can't escape it. Hotel California, though, is one of those unique moments when the music and the lyrics combine and they draw out of us something that happens very rarely, but it does happen. And that's this deep sense of longing, of yearning, of aching for something that's outside of our reach. And there's some music that does that. I think of this song, I think of a handful of others that do this, but it's this kind of sense, this inner awareness that is summarized in the German word Sehnsucht, is the German word for that. That feeling you have when your soul is stilled and you are yearning and aching for something that is very unattainable, but it's very real, or at least it seems unattainable, but it's real. It's what C.S. Lewis, I think, was describing when he said there's times when you have this sense of the scent of a flower you have not found, the echo of a tune you have not heard, news from a country you've never yet visited, an ache, a yearning, a longing for something that feels unattainable, but you know it's there calling you and it's real. So I think there are three ways, at least, that we can respond to this sense of Zainsukt, this longing, this yearning that we feel at times. And we see two of these, at least, in Hotel California. And one of those is to run from it, always to be on the run, always to be busy. And this is, in some ways, I think, distinctly American, or at least we're really, really good at it. I think going all the way back to the 19th century of go west, young man, keep going west all the way till you hit an ocean. That's all the way from Lewis and Clark to Route 66. It's that dream of just getting on the open road and running and going, keep going until the ocean stops you. I think that's why it's so powerful, that scene in Forrest Gump, the best part of Forrest Gump, about two thirds of the way through the movie. When remember Forrest Gump, he runs all the way to one ocean and he runs back to the other ocean and he keeps going back and forth across the United States and he goes back and forth over and over and you see all the beautiful beauty in the landscape of the United States. It's the best and the worst of all that is America. The quintessential song 
to express that is running on empty by Jackson Brown. Um, and I think you hear that in that, but one song, another one that comes to my mind that expresses that is Joan Baez, her song tumbleweed, where it says, I pulled all my roots free and I became a slave to the wind. That's one way to escape this Zainsukt is to become a slave to the wind. I'll be always going, always on the run, which is how the Eagles as a band began in the beginning. In 1967, Don Henley was a college student in Denton, Texas, and he was engaged to be married, and he heard the song California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas, and when he heard that song, he went, walked across the street to a cold and damp phone booth, he said, and when he did that, he picked up the phone, called this girl to whom he was engaged, and he got in his car and headed west to California. And I think we hear hints of that in Hotel California. How does the song start? On a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, warm smell of colitis, <laughs> all of that rising up around him. For, for you younger folks, that's a reference to the marijuana. That is a reference to the marijuana. So we do not want you smelling colitas. This is a completely colita-free program. That's right. And we want to keep it that way. Just say no to colitas. And so what you see in that is the song begins with the sense of restlessness and running. And so we see that one response to Zainsu. Yeah, what's the, what's the other way that we see it in the song? Well, I think we also see that another response to this sense of Zainsu is to try to numb it with pleasure. And we see that one, that's really the dominant theme in this song, is trying to numb it with pleasure, trying to numb it with noise and constant stuff and pleasure and doing things, try to numb it. We hear that in Pink Floyd's song, Comfortably Numb. When I was a child, I caught a fleeting Yeah, which takes so many different forms. Not not only a a, a numbing from pleasure um, in, in its various forms, but just simply drowning things out uh, with noise, with electronics, with I mean all types of things. Or uh, there are those folks that even numb the pain or, or numb this longing, not with things that we would say are pleasurable, but with other forms of pain, right? To take their mind off of one thing into pain that's more controllable. And so we see this so many ways and it looks different or it takes on new forms with different generations. I think that's right. I think you see it in the phenomenon of cutting. If I can't stop the pain, at least I can control the pain. I can take charge of the pain. That's an inner longing, a deep inner emptiness that gets expressed in horrifically 
harmful ways to oneself. We see it in drugs and alcohol, all these different things that it's trying to numb this. And that's really the strongest theme in Hotel California, because I think that was the strongest theme in the Eagles at this particular time. And one of the interesting things is that toward the beginning of it, it says, I heard the mission bell. I was thinking to myself, this could be heaven or this could be hell. It's interesting. And I don't think it's intentional, but it begins toward the beginning there is this distant call of the divine, of the mission bell in the distance. And he hears that there's a distant call of the divine that is going on in this. But of course, as he settles into this hotel, he says, please bring me my wine. And they said, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. 1969 being Woodstock, being that time that is this peak, but also the beginning of the end of that utopian dream that had come out of the 1960s and this casting off of restraints. But it doesn't lead to satisfaction We are all just prisoners here of our own device. We've landed here. We can't get out. And what is it? They've gathered for the feast. They stabbed it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. What do you think the reference to the beast is in that moment? What I think it is, is just this, it's kind of depicting as a beast, this hunger, this ravenous hunger, we might say, that is consuming them. In other words, they're trying to do all these drugs and and through these parties, they're trying to find satisfaction. And the very thing they thought would satisfy them at this meal becomes the thing that consumes them at that point. So parallel to the moment where you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. I think so. It's kind of a parallel. Okay, It's a lovely place, but you're trapped there. We're programmed to receive. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. They're trapped in this cycle of consumption in a lovely place, but it's ultimately not satisfying them. They just can't kill the beast. So I've been there, right? There was a period of my life where that was my context. And in the end, it's not actually true. It's not true that you can't leave. Do the eagles just not, I mean, it's just a song, right? It's not their entire theology, but our Christian theology has a different narrative than what the eagles give us. I think so. And I think that narrative is you can't leave in your own power. You have to have somebody from beyond you to rescue you. And that's where Romans 7 comes in. That's why in Romans 7, I think that Romans 7 can be read parallel to Hotel California. These two can be read parallel to one another because in Romans 7, Paul is saying, I can't get out of this. I can't do this. But how does he end Romans 7? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. I can't do it in my own power. I can never leave in my own power. But thanks be to God who has provided me a victor, somebody outside myself, a rescuer, a savior beyond me. Who has and will slay the beast. Exactly. And that's, I think, exactly what is going on in that. This is something where the eagles speak a truth in spite of themselves. And he has literally, Christ has slain the dragon. He has slain the beast in a very literal sense. By his defeat of Satan, he has done that. He has defeated the power of Satan, the power of the beast. And I think even in this, there's some helpful imagery in Revelation where the one who is in acting the will of Satan is 
referred to as the beast. And so the beast is defeated, is destroyed through and in Christ. And so what we see is that in both of these two options we've looked at in terms of a response to Zainsukt, these two responses of either run from it or try to numb it, both of them lead us to despair. That's where it leads us. And that's where Hotel California leaves us. Well, it really leaves us lyrically. Musically, it leaves us with two amazing guitar yes. solos in a row. Yes. But lyrically, it leaves us in despair. It leaves us what C.S. Lewis described when he said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are are far too easily pleased. And the Eagles Hotel, the Beverly Hills Hotel, where they're having all these lavish parties, is nothing but a mud pie compared to what God has to offer. And it's something that doesn't lead to ultimate satisfaction. And that leads us to C.S. Lewis's response to how we should respond to Zainsukt. As I said, there's two failed responses, but there's one right and good response, and that is that Zainsukt is a gift that points us beyond this world. That's ultimately what it should be. This longing, this yearning that we have in us should point us beyond this world. And that brings us to what C.S. Lewis says again. I know I'm relying a lot on C.S. Lewis, but he gets this, especially in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was a longing, a yearning. These things, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing in itself. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing the shy, persistent inner voice. That's how he's describing Zainsukt there. And he says then, almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. But if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so what does Zainsukt do? What it should do is point us to recognizing that we were made for a world beyond this and what we're longing for can be fulfilled. It can be satisfied, just not in our power or in this life. Or as Augustine said in the fourth century, our hearts cannot find rest until they find rest in God. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth.